Two questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening to Restoring the Soul. What would happen if we met God in the midst of our isolation, loneliness, grief, and vulnerability? What if our loneliness became the context for a deeper life with God and greater compassion for others? In this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael discusses the issue of loneliness with Jason Gabery, whose brand new book titled Wait With Me, Meeting God in Loneliness, will help you understand that loneliness can be the avenue to empathize with Jesus. We're thrilled to introduce you to Jason as his life mission is to know God and to live, lead, and serve in a way that others are inspired to know God. He has served the ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship since 1997, leading ministries on campuses in Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn, as well as pioneering efforts with the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. And in an effort to come alongside you and provide you with resources to accompany our podcast, we invite you to visit restoringthesoul.com slash I care for this week's download called Wait With Me, Meeting God in Loneliness. That's restoringthesoul.com forward slash I care. And now without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Jason Gabery, welcome to the Restoring the Soul podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. You are uh, the author of a book that is coming out May 19th with InterVarsity Press called Wait With Me, Meeting God in Loneliness. And I just finished it, and I'm, I'm really thrilled and honored to be able to talk to you about it. Oh, well, I'm delighted to be here and uh, have been listening to some of your podcasts as well. And uh, I really, um, this is an exciting opportunity for me to. So Jason, this is on the surface of things, uh, a book about loneliness, but it's not a book about loneliness. Um, I had mentioned before we hit record that it's really a book about spiritual formation. And I think it's a subversive book that you obviously talk about the issue of loneliness, but that's just the window into the deeper issues of the heart and what it means to walk more deeply with God. So am I in the ballpark about that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, People who pick up the book thinking uh, this is going to be a book that's five steps to help them overcome loneliness will be disappointed. It's it's not designed to be that. It actually grew out of a, a spiritual direction relationship I was in with a, a Jesuit priest who is a man, a missionary in his 70s. Uh, and I made an appointment to speak to him. I was seeing him for some spiritual direction. This is about 10 years ago. And I made an appointment to see him because I was surrounded by ministry opportunities. I was surrounded by people. We had young children at the time. Uh, our house is full of Play-Doh and play dates and colored paper. And it's just, you know, this kind of chaotic uh, all always full of people. And I would be standing at my kitchen sink washing dishes after a, a house full of students or friends from church had gone home. And I would have that deep restlessness inside that says, 
I don't feel seen, known, or loved. I'm not sure anybody gets me. I feel lonely. How is that even possible? And so I went to see Father Ugo, and I said, okay, I'm going to talk to him about this. He's going to help me sort this out. And, um, of course, he did such a great job of listening to me, and I'm uh, pouring out my heart, you know, about why, how lonely I feel and how this doesn't make any sense. And the whole time, uh, Friar Ugo's just sitting there, um, listening very actively, you know, is not commenting. You know, I could even see his eyes are bright with something, but I didn't know what it was. And uh, finally, after I spent 20 minutes talking, he said, this is all very good. And I thought, clearly you've not been listening. (laughs) Uh, And he said, he said, look, loneliness is to be human is to be lonely. Uh, Loneliness is all around us. It's, it was the experience, it's the experience of the person uh, are on the corner who doesn't have a place to live. It's the experience of uh, people uh, around the corner who are living in high rises, who are slaves to their work. It's the experience of people all around the world. And he said it was often the experience of our Lord himself. He said, so you can look to me or you can look to, you can look to something else. You can even look to your religious practice to take the loneliness away. Or uh, he said, you could see your loneliness as the beginning of God's work in you, uh, of a new phase of God's work in you. And I was just intrigued by that idea, like that maybe this loneliness wasn't something to avoid. It was something to push through a context to know God. And so that's really the book is about how do I know God in the context of loneliness? But it is a book about helping people who are aware of that inner restlessness or that inner uh, gap um, of loneliness to know God in that context. Many of us, myself included, we don't become aware of that restlessness inside, whether it's loneliness or some other kind of ache or pain or emptiness until life somehow comes apart or until we're somehow disoriented and so I'm curious if before that moment with, you know, the Play-Doh and the busyness and the ministry around, if there had been rumblings of it before then. Yeah, I've wrestled with loneliness as long as I can remember. Uh, it, it, perhaps even before I could remember feeling lonely. Uh, when I was growing up, my mom used to tell these stories about uh, I came six weeks early uh, and uh, in those days, if you came six weeks early or, you know, so I spent the first six weeks of my life in an incubator in the hospital. My mom came to visit. Uh, we were separated. Uh, and she used to tell stories about that. Uh, I also had some health problems when I was, uh, when I was a baby still. And mom was exasperated at that point. And so I would cry and cry and cry and cry. She'd do everything she knew how to do to, to, to care for me. And then she got in the habit of just putting me down, turning up the radio and, and, <laughs> and leaving me to just keep crying. Um, and as a parent, I'm totally sympathetic with that. I have no idea if that impacted those experiences, even that early had an, a lasting impact on my uh, sense of connection. But I can remember even as a, as a child feeling like this sense of, am I seen? Am I known? Am I loved? Uh, and having that question. And I think one way to think about, or one way that I think about loneliness is the 
the sense of I'm not seen. Uh, I'm here, but I'm nobody really sees me or nobody really gets me. Uh, I'm not really known. We have maybe, maybe have a relationship, but there isn't that sense of this person really knows me. And then uh, I might be seen or known, but I, I don't feel loved. I don't feel safe. I don't feel connected. And so that was a, that was a experience that I, I carried with me uh, from my earliest memories through college and into ministry. And, um, you know, even before that experience with Friar Ugo. It would be so tempting to pathologize that, you know, that there's this, <laughs> there's this longstanding pattern where, wow, are you dysfunctional? But, you know, part of why I was drawn to having you on the podcast and your book is I can sure relate to that. And I think that when, when we're honest, especially in moments when life either forces us to slow down and be a little bit uh, more introspective, like where we're at right now in the COVID-19 quarantine, uh, that it rises to the surface like a beach ball that's been pushed underwater. But I want to come back to something you said uh, that, that Friar Hugo said that even your religion can help you to avoid this loneliness. And I, I think that there's a lot yeah. of uh, incorrect, unhealthy teaching, if you will, that says that our relationship with Jesus uh, should just ultimately take away that loneliness, you know, because he's our best friend and, and he's in us and we're in him. And, and those things are true. But how, how is it that you have or that we can use our faith to avoid what we need to actually face? One way to think about it is or one of the kind of the journey that I'm taking in the book is helping. And it's the journey that I went on actually with Friar Ugo was to, to begin to read scripture in a way that is different than I'd read it before. Now I'm a professional Christian, so I read scripture all the time, right? But I'd never before this period of my life read scripture in a way that was both, um, both imaginative and empathetic, uh, in the sense of, so I'm not, I'm not trying to observe the text and come up with some moral uh, idea. Uh, I'm trying, I'm not trying to uh, even just respond to the text emotionally. How does this text make me feel? I'm trying to imagine myself immersively in this world. And I'm trying to empathize with the characters that are there. And I'm asking myself the question as, I, as I'm asking, as I'm going through it, how does this feel? If I try this on imaginatively, how do I feel if I'm this character, if I'm that character? What, what is this interaction about? And what that did, it revealed something and then it, it took me past something. What it revealed, what was true in me in ways I hadn't seen before was uh, I'd, and so many of us do this, we can project, we can think of a God as our, uh, we can think of our God activities as a way of, of kind of avoiding pain, of avoiding responsibility. We bring, our, we bring our pain to God and then God takes our pain away. But read the scriptures. Is that what God does? <laughs> uh, God didn't do that for Abraham. God didn't do that for Moses. God didn't do that for David. He didn't do it for Job. Uh, he didn't do it for uh, Hagar. Uh, God meets people in their moments of vulnerability and suffering and transforms them. And what they get is friendship with God. Uh, one of the things that I say a lot when I teach scripture is 
the reward of a friendship with God is God, <laughs> is friendship with God. <laughs> that, that's the reward. You, it's, not a, it's not a kind of your best life now. It's not a material success. It's not a, I, I literally had a conversation earlier today with a friend of mine, somebody I'd known for 20 years. He, he, he was walking me through uh, a really tough set of experiences in his life. And he, in his mid-40s, is asking the question now after uh, uh, some really painful experiences in his personal life and his professional life, he's saying, I thought that if I did the right things, if I prayed enough, if I made the decisions that I thought God was calling me to make, that these sets of things that I'm going through weren't supposed to happen to me. I was going to go out, I was going to, I was going to reach out in faith, and then God was going to meet me in that. And, and God hasn't done that. And so he's having this kind of crisis of faith. And I was sitting with him to encourage him and say, and to kind of sit with him and walk with him in that and, and hear those questions. But again, I think that the reward, what we get in, a, in our life with God is God. Uh, and that is different uh, from getting my pain taken away, getting my w- whatever I want. Um, and then finally, the kind of the last leg of that journey is it helped me to see that I had related to Jesus. I had related to Jesus because of what Jesus could do for me. Um, Jesus could take away my sin. Jesus could, you know, give me eternal life. Jesus could benefit me in some ways, but it had never occurred to me to love Jesus for Jesus, to empathize with Jesus and his experience. And uh, that was transformative for me. Uh, You know, you probably know that old song, what a friend we have in Jesus, you know, all our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And I think uh, you step back from that. It's a beautiful hymn saying something that's actually really important. But is that kind of relationship, a relationship of friendship, a relationship in which you're bringing all of your grief, all of your shame, all of your burdens, all of your sin, and just carrying that and then leaving it with this other person, never asking uh, about their grief or their burdens or what it's like for them. Like that's that that's not a friendship relationship. That's a relationship you have with a journal or a therapist or a, a, a banker, a, a banker, a banker. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not a relationship of friendship. And I realized, oh, I've been in Christian ministry now for for ten years, and I need to learn what it's like to have a friendship with God mm. in this way. And uh, that was transformative. Oh, that's so, so rich. There's, I'm taking a moment internally to kind of pause and what, what direction do we go with this? But what, what you've described, I've called transactional Christianity, where I'm going to do uh, X so that God does Y. And I'll be very honest, when you said, you know, why, what's the benefit of friendship with Jesus? Well, friendship with Jesus. Internally, there was this very, very quiet, maybe not as loud as it used to be, voice to say, that's it? Really? That's it? You know, but the journey that I've been on has been all about that. And I'll often ask the question, what if 
God wrote in the sky that because of Jesus dying on the cross, everybody who wants to be in heaven can go, would we still have to do evangelism? And I remember Dallas Willard saying once to the question, if the kingdom of God is open to anyone who wants it, as God revealed in Jesus has his arms open, then why do evangelism? And Dallas said, he goes, well, to tell people about Jesus, of course. And therefore, not to get the benefit of not going to hell, but to know that this is what God's like, that he, that he wants to be our friend, that he wants reciprocity. Uh, that as you talk about in one of the chapters, that we're invited to listen, to hear his voice, mm. not just for the winning lottery numbers or for what who we should marry and where we should go to school, but because he has much to say to us about who we are and what he's about. So, so Jason, I love the fact that there were all these verbs as chapter headings, and, and to me that indicated that this journey of putting ourselves into these scripture stories and entering into those so that they can enter into our reality, that there was a kind of progression. It wasn't linear, but an aspect mm. of a journey. So, so talk about the different stages of that journey and what it's been like for you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's a great question. So it, and you're right, it's not a linear journey. Uh, it's, it's a meandering journey, uh, the spiritual life. I think you, we, you know, we don't, things just don't go straight up and to the right all the time. Uh, but uh, we begin the, begin the process by, uh, with a chapter called C. And it's all about being able to name that restless feeling as loneliness. Uh, if there's one thing I hope that comes out of the book, I mean, I hope many things come out of the book, but uh, it, one thing I hope comes out is giving folks who read it the ability to to recognize that restless feeling inside and to be able to name that and say, oh, that's lonely. <laughs> that's what that is. You know, I, I, I wrote a, a white page kind of of sick with kind of six spiritual disciplines in times of loneliness. Um, and on that, the first one is the same as the book. It's, it's C it's anybody can be lonely. Uh, can we recognize it and name it? And the second one is leave. Uh, some, some of them, some of the journey in our life that is, uh, that connects us to loneliness is either our past or present leaving. Uh, many people are experiencing loneliness right now because they have left their work. They've left, you know, involuntarily, their work has dried up and their connections have dried up. And that restless feeling isn't just, for many people, it is concern about physical things, where's my uh, financial security going to come from? But, but it, alongside that, there's also the sense of my connections to other people, my connections to my job, my connections to this community are, are gone. I'm leaving something important. And... Um, and leaving, of course, has two sides to it. There's a, there are some situations we need to leave. Uh, and then there's other situations where, where leaving happens. I tell the story. Uh, I tell the story of my wife's immigration to the United States uh, in that chapter. And that was an involuntary leaving on her part. She was in, her, her mother came into the room uh, when she was 11 years old and said to her, I am leaving for the United States today you can choose to come with me or uh, you could choose to stay here and 
likely never see me again. There are really important reasons why that, why that happened, but that's that kind of traumatic leaving, right? That that's, and we have to come to grips with those experiences because they impact us. Um, grieving is important. I, I was surprised when I wrote the book, I didn't intend to write a chapter on grief, and, uh, but it, it emerged in the middle. And, um, and I realized in the process of writing that I couldn't, I couldn't really express the journey of, of loneliness or meeting God in loneliness without d- dedicating a whole chapter to grief or to listening, which is another discipline I think is we've already touched on. We think is really, really important. Um, so there is this in, in the spiritual life, in cultivating a friendship with God, it is a very active process that we don't control. Like any relationship, uh, we we have to be very active and engaged. And then and then there's also space for this real live other <laughs> being that we are receptive to uh, them as well. I think that's what was so powerful for me about the idea of leaving in that very first chapter. You went into the story in uh, Genesis 3, where they Mm -hmm. left the garden. They were told they needed to leave the garden. Uh, And then you unpack the idea of a man leaving his mother. But I I think it was later in the book that you talked about that you can't go home again. And so, Mm. you know, leaving implies, especially for your wife and her mother, this leaving home. And um, I once sat with a spiritual director and I said, uh, in a time of great trauma and healing from trauma in my life, I said, why is it so difficult and seemingly impossible to, to be by myself? And mm. this person knew me very, fairly well. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there, but they said, it's because there's no one home. And with trauma, you learn to, to feel and live as if no one's home. But he said, as you begin to heal and slowly start to practice being alone, you realize there is someone home. Mm. Uh, it's your own soul. And in that soul, uh, the, God, the God who created me is there. And um, so many different ideas going through my head right now, but that we, we have to be aware that we have left and that we are leaving in order to come back to that place of home within. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I end the chapter with uh, the story of, of Sophia and I returning to the Philippines, which is this, the country that she's from, and, um, and how the need to leave, um, we need to leave in order to come back. And it's, you can't go back uh, in t- and recover what, what was, but you can go on there's a creative restorative process that happens as you return to these stories, as you return to these, to these moments, as you return to these places in some cases that we're able to um, become more present to ourselves, uh, become more present to God, and then ultimately become more present to one another. As you talked about that process, Jason, of uh, pouring yourself into scriptures in such an imaginative way. Was there a a book or a person or a a way of doing that that you could tell our listeners about? I know that 
Eugene Peterson has written about sanctified imagination, and it sounds like there's elements of visio divina and lectio divina and imaginative prayer. But if someone said, in addition to reading your book, wow, that that sounds really good. I want to be able to drop myself into those stories. Where would you send them? Yeah, I don't say this in the book directly. Um, I, I do mention that uh, Father Ugo is a, was a Jesuit, uh, but uh, many of the uh, the approach to Scripture which he was encouraging is a uh, very much a Saint Ignatian kind of way of reading Scripture, and so uh, the spiritual exercises of, of Saint Ignatius are very much about reading the Gospels in particular this kind of way. Um, by far, my, my current favorite book about reading scripture in these kind of ways and a book that has shaped me is a book by, a guy, by a, another Anglican friar whose name is Chris Webb. It, the book is called Sacred Fire and, and it's Meeting God in Scripture. And there he talks about a number of these different approaches, Lectio Divina, uh, imaginative reading, uh, an Ignatian, that kind of Jesuit approach to scripture as well. Uh, as an Anglican friar, I, um, uh, in the Dominican tradition, I uh, practice sort of holy reading as a normal part of life. And what's different about that, which is a much more classical kind of Lectio Divina uh, process, um, what's different about what I'm in- encouraging people to do in the book is it's a little bit more uh, experiential and imaginative from the start. Yeah, and I love the idea uh, that G.K. Chesterton says in his introduction to his uh, biography on St. Francis. He said that most children who use their imagination have a better grasp on reality than adults and so imagination is not make-believe. It's using your mind and your faculties and senses to actually experience something of reality. Absolutely. And not only that, I'd, I'd take it a step further to say, if it's true that empathy is one of the key uh, building blocks of relationship, uh, you can't have empathy without imagination. Because in order to really empathize with another person, you have to, kind of, you have to be able to imagine the world from their perspective Mm. and it's the ability to, and and you know it, you know it both as an active participant in that when you, when you're sitting with someone and they're sharing about their experience and you, you feel it viscerally Uh, today as I was sitting with my friend sharing about the uh, difficult experience that he's gone through in his family there were times I could feel it physically, you know, because I'm imagining, gosh, what, what would that be like? to carry that kind of weight in that kind of way. And I can, I can, I can empathize with that. And then of course, you know, it, you know, when somebody's doing that with you and you know, when somebody's pretending to do that with you and they're not really, they're not really imagining, they're not really empathizing with you. They're just, they're just sort of uh, putting on a show. Um, Chesterton's absolutely right. If the world is as relationally constituted as I believe it is, then children who use their imaginations are much closer to understanding reality than, than <laughs> we are. <laughs> thus, uh, thus Jesus' words in Matthew 18, that to, to experience the, the kingdom of heaven, we have to become like a little child. 
And uh, I wonder if little children are more freely able to uh, identify and put words to their loneliness than I am mm-hmm. as an adult because uh, they may not have such an aversion to it and maybe they don't have as many distractions. I think you, I think that's a good insight. Can I tell a story that I tell in the book? Uh, Absolutely not. Exactly. Okay, fine. No, please. (laughs) Yeah, I actually just, I was going to ask you to unpack more of the stories, but you start there and then I'd like to have you talk about the risk chapter. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I, one of the stories I tell in the book is about when my daughter was four years old, uh, walking by her room and she was in a full on sort of spiritual crisis and she's just crying and rest and she's, she's, she's ugly crying and she's, you know, I, I just kind of go into her room and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I think, did she, what's the matter, sweetie? Did you have a bad dream? And she says, she says, no, we, I was, I was praying, you know, and she's kind of, <laughs> You know, just kind of hyperventilating. She says, "I was, I was praying in my in my room, and 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 I asked Jesus to c- c- come here, and 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 why won't Jesus come and 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 into my room?" You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just sitting there, uh, you know, and uh, listening to this this four year old kind of have this longing for uh, this connection with God. And I thought, you know, uh, there's something, there's this urgent desire to see, to experience, to know, uh, to, 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 uh, to be known by God, by, by Jesus in that sense. And, uh, that sense of, of that longing for that. And then the, the, the pain or the angst of not be, of not experiencing that right away. Um, that, that's part of the the story that um, kicks off a chapter to talk about uh, restlessness, our inner restlessness, and what our inner restlessness points to. Yeah, we were talking before the the, the uh, record button started at the top of the podcast about our mutual uh, enjoyment of Father Ron Rollheiser and. I talk a Mm -hmm. lot about his quote on our podcast. He says that all spirituality is about what we do with the unrest in our soul. But we have to actually realize that that unrest is there um, because we can, we can work so hard to know, to be in that, that active form of God. I want to know you. I'm going to seek you that we, we never have to slow down to actually be known which requires facing our emptiness, our loneliness, that fear like your daughter. But man, if we, if we live too long in our faith and we're not known, we'll get exhausted because that can't be sustained. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I love that Rollheiser says we don't have a choice about it. Right? We don't have a choice about whether or not we're going to be spiritual. Uh, we, we, have a choice, we have a choice about what we do with the fire inside us, and that is our spirituality. Which yeah. I think is just well, really well put. Yeah. yeah. Will you talk about that chapter about risk? Sure. Um, is that the one? Is that the one about with Esther's story in it? Yeah, and just the role of risk on this journey of going inward with our loneliness and how that how that plays into spiritual formation and this inner journey. Yeah. Um, so that's a chapter that that. 
uh, really grateful for uh, a good friend of mine is a activist in New York City and uh, leads uh, has been doing that for about 10 years and uh, deeply spiritual, deeply self-aware. And he tells the story about uh, he wrote a he wrote an article called How Racism is Ruining My Marriage. Uh, African-American man married to a woman who is both who is biracial uh, Korean and uh, Chinese and um, how as he was wrestling with some of the Black Lives Matter news and wrestling with some of his own ethnic identity, how uh, as his wife moved in to comfort him, he pushed her away uh, and said, you know, basically said, leave me alone, leave me alone. And then at the end of the piece, he says, I got what I wanted uh, which was to be left alone. But, uh, but the reason he, he, he realized, the reason he was saying, leave me alone, is because he's, he'd internalized this story about as a black man, he's the, the vulnerabilities of his ethnic identity. As a black man, I can't really be known, seen, and loved. I'm always going to be perceived as a threat. I, I can't really be connected to others. I can't really be safe in this, uh, even in this, uh, these kinds of relationships. And so the best thing I can do is kind of hold on to myself and, and uh, try to protect myself. And then he realizes in that story, uh, he realized in that experience, this is, this is downstream of, of the racism he's experienced and the racism he's given his life to, uh, fight against. And he's, but in order to be active in this pursuing social justice and pursuing uh, the kind of work he, he feels called to do, he's got to actually do the inner work of confronting the ways that his um, internalization of uh, messages that say, I can't be seen, known, loved, and valued. Uh, has impacted him uh, downstream. And he made the observation, he said, when I do a protest, when I lead a protest, or I get interviewed, you know, in a newspaper, and I, I'm, I'm in the news, uh, in a positive way, I, I feel seen, known, loved and valued. But the hashtag fades, the march is over, the event is over. And if, if my sense of being seen, known, loved, and valued comes from my need to be in this particular spotlight, in this particular place, in the, connected to this particular initiative, if that's where that's coming from, it's, it's, it's always going to fade. And it's always going to, and I'm going to, um, I'm not going to be able to be sustained in this work. I have to, I have to learn who God is in the, in the midst of that. In that chapter, I, I talk about the story, tell the story of Esther and um, the, the, the character of God, who's actually never mentioned by name in the, the process, but the, the character of God that emerges in that story is God is the Hebrew concept of chesed, this mm. covenant faithfulness of God. Uh, there's a plan to exterminate God's people, but God 
God is faithful to his covenant. He is his chesed, his loving kindness, his faithfulness is going to provide for his people. Um, Esther is a person, vulnerable person, who becomes, who's moved into this uh, place of privilege, but still incredible vulnerability. Um, and uh, by the grace, unmerited favor, has said covenant faithfulness of God. And then is, because she's in that place, uh, is able to extend uh, that, is able to influence uh, the, the king and is able to extend God's uh, covenant faithfulness uh, and so on. And so there's, there's, a way that, uh, there's a way that the risk that our, when we are engaged in risk or activism or um, being engaged in some kind of meaningful risk uh, activities, it exposes us to the question of where is my sense of self, my sense of identity, my sense of security coming from ultimately? Is my sense of being seen, known, loved, and valued coming from my ability to produce, my ability to accomplish, or is it coming from uh, the character of God? Is it coming from a secure knowledge of the loving faithfulness of God. And uh, so engaging these stories uh, really helps us come to grips with, oh, this is, this is who God is. And, and it begins to help us to imagine what would it look like if my sense of, uh, my sense of well-being, emotional well-being, relational well-being, spiritual well-being was anchored in the faithfulness of God. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not necessarily especially faithful. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm flawed and, and, uh, have good days and bad days. And, uh, but God is faithful. And if my, if my sense of, uh, emotional, spiritual security is anchored in the faithfulness of God, then that frees me to offer the best I have without needing it to provide uh, something for me. That was probably a long answer to that question, but. <laughs> no, that's so good. That's so good. Um, you know, we think, uh, especially in the, the evangelical traditions that are heavily, heavily weighted with just getting more and more scripture inside of you on kind of a cognitive level, we, we think that, um, that we can arrive at this place of experiencing this reality of God's love and being seen, known, loved, and valued just, just by getting the information inside of us. But really the whole point of your book is that we have to leave and then go through mm-hmm. the desert and grieve and risk. And it, it really is a journey that involves pain. And, um, as you're talking about your, your friend, the activist, and as I'm thinking about all the ways that I have sought to be seen and valued and loved and known, I'm reminded of the quote that I'm sure you've heard from uh, attributed to Janis Joplin, who said, I could stand on stage and through my songs, make love to 30,000 people and then still go home lonely. And, you know, there's such a temptation to, to fill our cup uh, through through things that are so precarious and temporal, and um, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, but it's when we come to that place of going home lonely that that's when we discover what's really real. 
Absolutely right. Hey, I would love for you to end out this podcast, and I hope we have more conversations. Would you read that section um, from your book? It's on page, I think, 157 at the end. That is just a beautiful summary of not just your journey through and around this loneliness, but about the spiritual formation process. And then I'll just kind of bless you, and we'll sign off, and we'll hopefully talk again. That would be great, of course. And I'd like you to read it in uh, both uh, Akkadian and Hebrew and Arabic. <laughs> I'll just try English and see if we can, we can make that work. Uh, the invitations God gives us in loneliness in Scripture brings us to Jesus, who says, wait with me. Jesus embraced loneliness and isolation deeper and more profoundly than we know. He embraced the call to leave an eternal home of intimacy, sufficiency, and potency to become helpless, vulnerable, killable. Jesus was driven into the desert where he became famished with hunger before being tempted by the accuser himself. Jesus regularly resisted the urge to grasp after power, privilege, or prestige, choosing instead to cling to God's word and will, even to death. Jesus' teaching revealed a profound attentiveness. His parables, sayings, and actions regularly call out for those who have ears to listen deeply. Jesus grieved deeply not only at the death of his friend, but also at the hardness of heart he encountered in Jerusalem. Unlike Esther, who rightly feared that her taking risks for others could lead to her death, Jesus embraced a mission that would certainly lead to his death. Jesus's compassion, teaching, and healing ministry were anchored in a deep awareness of what God was doing. Jesus' commitment to follow God's will led him to total abandonment, utter rejection, torture, and death. I used to think that Jesus' isolation, misunderstanding, rejection, and loneliness would mean that Jesus could sympathize with me in my loneliness. I now believe that my experiences of loneliness and isolation help me to know Jesus. At the center of the Christian story is God in Jesus, utterly rejected, isolated, alone. The one who created us for relationship out of love endured the worst kind of obliteration we could invent. Stretching flesh between earth and sky, the lonely, isolated, abandoned one cries out words of mercy, inviting us even in anguish, to wait with him so that we might grow friendship with God. It is through this loneliness of God that we're invited to know him and to love him. It's through this strange participation in the loneliness of God that we're summoned to love others. To be human is to be lonely. These days, loneliness, depression, and anxiety are accelerating. We're desperate to reconnect. We're desperate for transformation. What would happen if we met God in the midst of our isolation, 
loneliness, grief, and vulnerability? What if our loneliness became the context for a deeper life with God and greater compassion for others? Jason, Gabri, thank you. Those are beautiful words. You're such an eloquent writer, uh, and this material is so rich. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Your book, Wait With Me, uh, releases May 19th, just a few weeks away. And I wish you all the best with that. And um, stay safe and healthy there in New York City. Thank you very much. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. Restoring the Soul.